Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. If you're here this morning, you don't have a Bible, just slip up your hand. We want to get you the text in front of you. You're going to need it printed or digital. doesn't matter. So pull out your phone or pull out um, the Bible and go with us to Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter 1. Hey, y'all like my new pulpit? Not bad. Courtesy of the Walkers. Thank you. Better than that cart that I stole from some teacher somewhere in the school. And uh, it was in the hallway, so, you know, it's fine, right? Great. Philippians 1, what do we have here in today's text? Well, we have the divinely inspired apostle, Paul. He's writing a very important letter to a small church in Philippi. Philippi is modern-day Greece. These are new believers. This is a newly founded church. They're just kind of getting going, the first couple years of a, of a church plant, essentially. And Paul's scriptural letter starts like any other letter would have started in that time in the first century. It goes like this. Take a look at verse 1. Who the letter is from, that's how it starts. It reads in verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Who the letter is to, as you go down in the verse, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. And then the third part of every first century letter was well wishes. That's what you see in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. We still do the, essentially the same thing today. You write an email to someone you never corresponded with, it begins with who it's from, who it's to, and well wishes, right? Hey, this is, uh, hey, this is John Raymond, pastor at Grace Athens. Um, hope you're doing, you know, hey, Bill. So who it's to. Hey, Bill, this is Pastor John from Grace Athens. And then the, what's the very next line? Hope you're doing well, right? Hope you and your, hope you, you and your church are doing great this season. Merry Christmas, right? Well wishes. Same kind of thing, okay? This is what Paul's doing in this divinely inspired letter. Now, what comes next in Paul's letter, in the passage we're going to look at today, is the same two things that show up in most of his New Testament letters, and it goes like this. If we could bring it to the screen. The first one is a thanksgiving report. That's verses 3 through 7. Paul giving thanks for things he sees in their church. And the second is a prayer report. It's Paul making uh, a prayer, an intercession to God for things that need to happen in the future, okay? And that's the remaining of the past. We're going to look at the first one today. So we're going to focus on is this Thanksgiving report. And trust me, there is much here for us. So let's go ahead and jump in. We're going to read verses 3 through 5. Paul writes by the Spirit, I thank my God in all my, remem all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for, for you all, making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Let's stop there. Take a look at verse 3. He begins with these words. I thank my God. I thank my God. He starts by giving thanks. Why? Because in many ways, what Philippians is, it's a thank you letter from Paul the Apostle. A thank you letter. A thank you note. How many of you are good at sending those? Thank you notes, right? Some of you, you got married and it took you a year to send out the thank you notes, right, from all the gifts you got. I, I've probably written three thank you notes in my life, okay? Some of us are good. Some of us are bad. Danielle has a sister who writes a thank you note for almost everything. I won't make a comment on that. She just writes a thank you note for everything. Okay. This is what Paul's doing. What is Paul thanking them for? Is it a gift in the mail? Is it an introduction that they made for him? Why is he thanking them? The answer is at the end of the letter. 
So turn over to the fourth chapter of Philippians, and you'll find the answer right at the end when he's wrapping it up. What is he thanking them for? That's our guiding question. Look at verse 18. Paul says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, the Philippians, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. The answer is this. The church had raised money from the congregation to financially support Paul's ministry. That's what he's thanking them for. Okay? We do the same thing here. When someone goes overseas to do missions work, right? Amanda Okesh, she's right now in the 1040 window. She's doing missions work. The Bactors are going across uh, to the West Coast in just a few weeks, and they're doing missions work. They're, they, I know he's talked to many people. If you haven't talked to Caleb yet, you should. Caleb or Amanda, they, they're partnering up with a ministry that I really believe in. It's called Circuit Riders. It has a lot of history to it. I've done some work with them, but they go to all... How many... Just yell it out, Caleb, you're a worship leader. How many universities last year? 500. Go down that stat line you told me at lunch. Just go ahead. Amazing ministry. Yeah. It has its history in William Asbury, Wesley Asbury, those guys... Circuit riders, they would get on horses and they would ride this circuit where they would share the gospel in different towns, different communities. Circuit riders has focused, they're based out of California, they focused on the next generation when it comes to universities. They just do amazing work. And so Caleb right now is doing what Paul did. He's raising money to go do that gospel work. And just like the Philippians, he's raised a lot of money even within our own congregation to, to go do that. If you haven't talked to him about it yet, please do. And you might be a, a potential partner. But this is what's happening for Paul in the letter. He's thanking them. He's writing a thank you to the church for their financial support. Missionaries still do this today, right? I get letters of thank you from missionaries from our church still today. Here's what's different about Paul's. Very different. And it's so subtle you could miss it, but it's, 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 it's supreme in its thinking. What's different is the object of Paul's thanks. The object. It's not the Philippians. It's not the moms and dads that set aside money that year to support Paul's ministry. It's not the potential college students who sacrificed that semester and gave money to Paul. But shouldn't they be? They're not. They're not the object of Paul's thanks. Rather, God is. What does it say in verse 3, the beginning of the letter? I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. I thank my God. So he directs his thanksgiving not to them, but to the Lord. Why? Why, why would he do this? I mean, they deserve some kind of thanks, do they not? Answer. Paul knows deeply, profoundly, that all good things ultimately come from the hand of God. He knows that. He's been, you read about his life, he's been through it. Our food from the hand of God. Our clothing from the hand of God. Our sanity in 2023 from the hand of God. I was at a prayer meeting at the Pittner's house. And we were going around. It was like clearly my turn to pray. And I just couldn't get my mind off of, 
like the small things that God, the Almighty, has sent our direction, like, like sanity, <laughs> like the ability to resist certain temptations that happened in 2023 in your life, the, the ability to forgive, the ability to just have, to not wake up with despair or boredom and have the wherewithal to say, I'm going to put my pants on and my shirt on, I'm going to get in my car and I'm going to go to work. That's from God. That's ultimately from him. Paul lived with this vision of the world. You see? Where all things were from the hand of God. James, the brother of Jesus, same thing in his letter. Chapter 1, verse 17, he says, Every, and he meant the word, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Paul and the apostles, they had this all-pervasive vision of God. This, this, some have called it a God-entranced vision of the world, of all things. For him, God was not only reigning everywhere, but was reigning through everything. A lot of times we talk about God's sovereignty and his reign, that, that he governs the universe, you know, kind of in general, at a distance, with power, God doesn't just reign over everything. He reigns through everything, even the small things. Therefore, he deserves our thanks. Paul had a very big God, very big God, where he can stare the generous Philippians in the face and he can look up and he can give thanks to the Lord. Imagine if we began to live that way. And it's also because of this big vision of God, he can say what he says next to them in the verse, right? I'm still in chapter 4. Look what he says next to them in verse 19. He gives them a promise because he knows God. He says in verse 19, and my God, Paul says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul confidently knew that God would supply every need of theirs because Paul had a really big God that was enough. Do we know that? I mean, really, do we know that? Where do we direct our thanks? Ultimately. When something, just a small blessing, big blessing happens, does your mind immediately, does your, does your mind immediately go to thanking God? If they, if they do, if it does, then what you're doing without knowing it is you're building a bigger and bigger God in your mind every time who's in charge and reigning and ruling and blessing and holding and, and, and organizing everything in your life. Here's the truth of scripture. Greater knowledge of God starts with greater thankfulness to God. Greater knowledge of God, an expanding vision of who he is, starts with the habit of thanking God often. Amen? Let's continue in Paul's prayer. So back to chapter 1. And right there... We'll start again at verse 3. 
Paul says, he prays, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you, for you all, making my prayer with joy. It's a really important phrase. He's letting them into his attitude, his state of being. I make every prayer of mine, he says, with joy. Now let me tell you the backstory. Paul had every reason to be lacking in joy. Every single reason to be lacking in joy. Remember where he is writing this letter. He's rotting away in Roman prison right now. And I don't know about you, but my hunch is, I, I, I can't say this with any kind of scholarly <laughs> um, credibility, but my hunch is those Roman prisons weren't that great. It's just a hunch. They were pretty nasty, torturous, brutal people when it came to their criminals. I mean, they crucified them, right? So he's rotting away in prison. He's been charged with crimes against the state that aren't true, that aren't real. And he's awaiting execution. Any moment, the jailer can come in, and he's a Roman citizen, so he's beheaded. He won't be crucified. He gets that dignity. Wow. We'll behead you instead, Paul. Oh, good deal. I'll take it. So he's awaiting that to happen any any moment. Now, it's my hunch that Paul, I'm I'm guessing, again, no scriptural authority. My hunch is Paul did not think it was going to end like this. Why? The ministry was booming. Just getting started. The number of converts were soaring. I I can imagine in that cell, at least if it was me, feeling things like, why God, why now? Why end it? He had every reason to sit there in self-pity and turn inward. But instead, what is he doing? Practically, he's writing encouraging letters to other people. He's thinking of others. He's taking the time prayerfully and inspired by the Spirit, authorized as an apostle to write New Testament material, to to write and encourage other people. He says he's praying for them fervently with joy. He's thanking God for everything. I look at that. I mean, really look at it. Really look at the facts. Not just read our Bibles on the surface, but really get into the story of what's going on with this man who's writing And I look at that and I say, that's miraculous. That's miraculous. Only God could authentically, authentically generate such an attitude in a man rotting in a cell. Acts, Acts, is it 16? I think it is. It's when he's first in Philippi. It's middle of the night. He's he's been beaten. They literally literally got a mob. Just imagine. We'll say Watkins. Let's say Athens. Bigger town. Athens. Imagine these two guys come in and they start you know, giving this different message, this gospel, this, it has even political implications to it, all this stuff. And all of a sudden, people rushed these two individuals, him and Timothy. They drag them to the middle of, what is that, College Avenue, Clayton, whatever, wherever it is, and, and they begin to beat him. So much so that the police are called, you hear the sirens coming, and these, these men have been obliterated by the pounding of all this angry mob. And they have to rescue them because they're going to kill them if it keeps going. And they throw them in a jail. You know what he's doing at midnight after that kind of morning? It says he's singing hymns and praises with joy to God. That's miraculous. Only God can do that. To give another example of God's provision in Paul's life for this kind of attitude, 
just 12 years earlier than this letter, he wrote a similar one. It's to another church community in Thessalonica. It's called Thessalonians. These people had it really, really rough if you look at history. They were under some very intense persecution back then. They had, again, every reason not to be joyful. But Paul tells them to be. He commands them to be. If we could bring that to the screen, take a look. First Thessalonians, you've probably heard this verse before. Chapter 5. He says, black and white, rejoice always. Not rejoice sometimes. Clear word, always. Rejoice. Be joyful. He says, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Paul knew the circumstances they were in. I mean, you know, like, you have the choice to go there in the conversation or not. You ever been in one of those conversations? Over dinner, over coffee, like, we, you know, over Thanksgiving? <laughs> Any memories there? We can go there. I can take it to the, a real personal level here, or I can take it controversial. That's a controversial statement coming out of the mouth of Paul. You're telling us to give thanks in every circumstance? My daughter was killed yesterday. They dragged my wife from the Bible study to prison. You're telling me, Paul, to give thanks in every circumstance? This wasn't like a light, like, Oop, get a tattoo and put it on your, you know, bumper sticker. This is real life. He goes on. He ups the ante. He knows that they're going to question if they should give thanks to God in every circumstance. That's why he puts the last part in the verse. Unquestionably, he says, for this is the will of God. It's not me talking, he's saying. I know it's hard to hear, but it's not me talking. He's saying this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We like to skip over that word in Christ Jesus. I think we talked about it last week or the week before. That talks about our union we have as Christian men and women with the living Christ. One of the most predominant themes and uh, paradigms in the New Testament. In Christ, union with Christ. What he's saying in this particular instance is that kind of attitude to give thanks all the time, to have joy, to rejoice, it's not humanly possible unless you are in Christ Jesus. That's why he says it. Paul's saying, I know this is going to be hard, but you don't self-generate such a positive response because you want to. It's given to you in Christ Jesus. See, uh, let me tell you about what theologians have called the higher Christian life that we're to all have over the years. It's where we get that vision that Paul had by grace where all comes from God, all happens through God, and all goes back to God. Romans 11. A God and trans vision of your life. What I read in that and other New Testament passages is, is this. Here's an example of how it's all from God. <laughs> this is how God designed the Christian life. We even need to thank God for the ability to thank Him. You want to rejoice always and obey the command, give thanks in all circumstances? Don't leave here thinking, by gosh, I'm going to do it. Leave here in a spirit of humility and say, Lord, play the thanking, generous person in me. Christ, your spirit's within me, generate that kind of fruit in my life. That when things hit the fan, my response is, yes, authentic pain, but thanks that you're with me, that you're using me. 
That's only possible in Christ Jesus. I don't care how many positive thinking seminars you go to. What I see in Paul and in the men and women of the New Testament is miraculous. What happens when you get the doctor's result? What happens? What happens when you're betrayed by a friend, close friend? You know and I know we can't generate that kind of response. Only God can. Only God can. Amen? I want to talk while we're here talking about joy. I want to talk about the Holy Spirit's role in your Christian joy. Is that okay? Can we go there? Amen. I'm always looking for one person. Just one person to give me permission and I'll do it. The Holy Spirit's role in your Christian joy. What does the New Testament say about it? Here's what it essentially says. And I'll take you to a couple passages. Joy in your life is not dependent on your positive thoughts being present, but on the Spirit's presence. If I could sum it up a sentence, I would say. Joy in your life is not dependent on your positive thoughts, your reaction. I'm really trying to do the thing John said. Being present. Not dependent on that. It's not the ground. But on the Spirit's presence. His presence in the situation. Let, let me, it's deeper than that. Let me, let me show you. I mean, think of this verse. Where, that's a geographic language, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of, not John Raymond, the Spirit. Is he present? In fact, you can have a lot of negative thoughts, and still it'll come through. Is love and joy, peace, patience, and down the line. One more, Romans 14. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So what's the answer in the New Testament? Where the Spirit is, joy is. It grows. And because, let's just think this through to finish it out, because this is the nature of Christian joy, how it works, the implication is this. Joy, for the Christian, transcends your circumstances. It's a transcendent joy, not a dependent joy. A lot of us live by dependent joy. This happened, that happened, that didn't happen. I feel good. See? This is not dependent joy, but transcendent joy. It's not based on your circumstances, but on God's spirit. And praise God that is true. That's the truth of scripture. The Holy Spirit is your ground of joy. Where he is, joy grows. So here's the question. Have you and have I made relationship with the Holy Spirit in this kind of way? Like, here's my reaction to that truth. You should be really happy and really grateful that the Holy Spirit lives inside you every single day. Like, what a bargain. What a gospel bargain. Amen? We get so inundated on these amazing truths that we, 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 they, they don't pop like they should. What an amazing truth that you woke up and the Holy Spirit still stayed inside you, within you, connected to you, merged with you, and is pumping 
forever pumping, generating these kinds of fruits in your life. <laughs> Praise, hallelujah. All right. That's what I had on the Holy Spirit and joy. Let's keep going. You doing good? Great. It's, it's the Bible. All right, here we go. All right. Next thing that happens in Paul's passage here. He's going to give his reason for his joy. Okay? I hope part of what I'm doing when I preach on Sunday is modeling for you what you can do on your own. Okay? You can see these things if you just give God time in the morning and afternoon, whenever you do. Verse 5, he gives the reason for his joy. He uses the word because. So I'm making my prayer with joy. Verse 4, verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Because... Here's the reason, your partnership in the gospel. That's why he's joyful. I love that phrase. I just kept saying it over and over when I was studying this week. Partnership in the gospel. Partnership in the gospel. The same thing, I relate to Paul. The same thing brings joy to me today. I'll tell you this. My greatest friends, if you really ask me, my greatest friends in grade school, college, and adult life, all the way through, have been those whom I had a partnership in the gospel. Spiritual friendship. We both loved God and we wanted to make God known. It was as simple as that. And I'll tell you this. <laughs> I've been friends with some really quirky people over the years. I mean, really. Kind of folks that you wouldn't think we'd mesh well together. I remember when my brother Mark came and visited me at Georgia College, and he was meeting my friends for the first time, and he's like, man, all right. <laughs> you know, this is a, quite a gaggle of people here, man. I mean, uh, some of them were just, they just weird. They were. But they loved God. And we both, we had the same passion. We didn't want to just go to school, but we wanted to see God reach our school. And so we had a bond that it didn't care that, I won't name names in case they listen to the podcast, but it didn't matter if they were quirky as all get out. It just didn't. I mean, I, I was around. Yo, there were some folks. They weren't charismatic. They were charismaniacs. I mean, they were out there. But you know what? You know, you eat the meat and spit out the bones sometimes because we had a what? A partnership in the gospel. That's what we had. Those kinds of friendships bring me the most joy. And they did for Paul, too, as he says there in the verse. Verse 5, that, that, that word partnership is, is the word koinonia in the original Greek language that the New Testament was written. Koinonia, it's a fun word to say, partnership, koinonia. And it means more than just fellowship. It means more than just community. It means a joint ownership in having a shared mission to be accomplished. Partnership in the, a joint ownership and a shared mission that we got to get done. That's what a local church of believers should be at their best. A koinonia in the gospel. A Christian family with a mission. And the mission is to further spread God's gospel in Athens, Oconee. The mission is not to build our budget. Some churches, they, they, they lose their way. And it was for good reason in the beginning. They just want to do more ministry and reach more people. But you can tell over time, this thing's really shifted from a gospel 
driven focus that everything we do is for that end, and it's, it, it's kind of turned on itself. It's become more about money. Or it's become more about certain people. There's a lot of politics in the church. A lot of people get access to things that other people don't. They get access to decisions and influences, and it's become more about uh, the politicking game or programs, or we can go down the list. But a church, in its purest form, is a koinonia in the gospel, meaning a local church does not exist for itself. It doesn't even exist for its devoted members. It exists for the spread of the gospel in a particular place. That's church in its purest form. And that's our shared work here for the next 30 years. Whether we stay in this cafeteria the whole time or not, I don't know. Who will ask, you know, what's your plan? Say again, what's your plan? Oh, I don't know. This is my plan. I'll see where it takes me. I don't really have a plan. We're going to follow God and see where he leads us. We're going to do certain things every season, in season, out of season. We're going to make disciples and we're going to preach the Bible. That's what we're going to do. We're going to gather in community. We're going to befriend each other. That's really about all I know. How long are we going to be at North Oconee? God knows. Could be a couple years. Maybe someone gives us a, a, an old dying church building. Maybe we, you know, merge with another church. I don't want to scare you. I mean, trust me, that would be a lot of prayer on that one. But I don't know. I don't know. I just know we're going to preach the Bible and we're going to make disciples. That's what we're going to do. We're going to keep the main thing the main thing. Amen? Good. I'll remember this day. You said it. All right. My hope is this, that when God closes the door at the end of our run, whether it's 100 years from now, 50, whatever it might be, that the gospel was further spread because we were once here. That's church. And so the question, the application question for us as we just, just settle in on that one part of the passage is, um, do you pray for this? Do I pray for this? The spread of the gospel in Athens, Oconee. Spread of the gospel, UGA campus. My neighborhood, your neighborhood. Normaltown, Five Points, Watkinsville, Bogart. Do you drive around town with this in mind? Some seasons I do. Some seasons I don't. No, to be honest with you, I don't think about it as much as I should. Am I thinking about people's souls on a given day? Souls. Having eternal life now and in the future. That's what Paul's worried about. All right. Paul keeps talking here in the passage. You still with me? All right. Verse 6, we just have two more verses. Paul says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, Philippians, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is using the language here of a man who has no doubts. He says, verse 6, the very beginning, take a look. I am sure of this. What's he sure of? It's the question. What's he sure of? You can get your theology really bad if you answer that question wrong. What is Paul sure of? The Philippians or God? What does he say? I'm sure of this. Here's the object. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Who's he sure of? Christians or God? Their ability to stay the Christian course and never swerve from the truth, 2 Timothy 2.18. To never deconstruct, never, no matter what. 
to never de-church, to never deconvert their ability? No, no, we know, no. God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. He is sure in their secured salvific future because of God's sovereignty, not theirs. What does that mean? That you will be, what's he talking about here? What's the real object? He's talking about that you will be there. You, you, me, you will be there on the last day in Christ's kingdom and not outside of it. That's what he says. Verse 6. No, verse, yes, 6. He says, on the day, at the day of Jesus Christ. Let me ask a question. Is anyone here confident enough in their own spirituality? I mean, really, to guarantee themselves that they'll make it in the end. I'm going to ask that again. I think it's a profound question. And yes, I came up with it. Here it goes. Is anyone here confident enough in their own spirituality to guarantee themselves that they'll make it in the end? No. No. I mean, why? Why? Why did you wake up a Christian, still a Christian this morning? You ever had that question? I heard another pastor ask it. Why did you wake up a Christian this morning? Because of you or because of God? There are a thousand reasons I could, over my lifetime, could despair and doubt and deconstruct and go down a path of shipwreck that the New Testament talks about. And for most people, it's so slow. It's just a little bit more each year of swerving a little bit further from God's word and God's spirit and God's community. And 20 years down the road, they are lukewarm or worse, they're cold. But it's not ultimately because of me, but because of God. I have a quote that I'd like to show you that I think really speaks to this. And do we have one? Oh, no. Okay, I'm going to read it to you. Listen closely. Because it's about four sentences. And I can't remember who the scholar was, so no plagiarism, whoever you are, thank you. Here we go. And I quote, salvation would be a wretchedly unsure thing if it had no other foundation than my having chosen Christ. The human will blows hot and cold, is firm and unstable by fits and starts. It offers no security of tenure. But it is the will of God that is the ground of salvation. No one would be saved had not the Lord been moved by his own spontaneous and unexplained love to choose his people before the world was and at the decisive moment to open our hearts to hear, understand, and accept the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. This, then, is assurance. God has willed my salvation. End quote. Because the implication is, what a shaky thing if this wasn't the case. But Paul says, I'm sure of it. Because I'm sure of God. There's two other awesome features. Really easy to miss, but man, they will change your perspective. 
two awesome features of, of what's called assurance of your salvation. Okay? Let me tell them to you. The sovereign assurance not only guarantees the outcome, that you will be there on the day of the Lord, that you'll make it, you'll stay a Christian. It not only guarantees the outcome, it also guarantees every experience on the way there. Let me explain. That God will use the good and the bad for this one outcome. I will save them in the end. They will not walk away from the faith. And I'm going to use everything, even their doubts, even their depression, to make them clutch more and more onto me. That's his promise to you. You know the verse, Romans 8, 28, 29, somewhere in there. I work everything out for good. For those who are called according to my purpose, those that love me. He even uses the word predestined. Foreknew and predestined. I mean, it's a sure thing. Meaning that there's no crisis or tragedy coming in your future that's going to stump God. <laughs> I, I can sleep at night. There's nothing coming that might be so incredibly difficult and complex and, and, and contradictory and confusing, wicked and whatever it might be, dark, that is going to stump God like Gosh, Michael, what do you think we should do about this one? I don't know how to use this for their sanctification and for their good. I'm not sure. Nothing is going to stump God. Good news, bad news, my sin, my failure, blessing, discipline, judgment, whatever it is. God will have me ready. And here's the thing. He'll use every raw material of my life to do it. Nothing's excluded. In the sovereignty of God for your current and future salvation. Nothing's excluded. But do you exclude things? <laughs> I love to be choosy when it comes to sanctification. I pick and choose. Do we exclude things? Paul could have easily excluded the prison sentence. God, this, this can't be you, God. You're not in this. You're not going to use this. Could have easily excluded it. How, how do you, what's the test, John, to know if I'm an excluder and a denier of God's sanctifying process? How, how do I know? What's the true test? Give me the rubric. Do you whine, complain, and murmur a lot? <laughs> Thank you. We could all say yes. We're 21st century American Christians. You know that term, first world problems. Do you whine and complain and the biblical word murmur a lot? Little things and big things. Is that just kind of what comes out of you sometimes? Yeah, it does. We can all say that. Why? Because we have limited what God can do. We have excluded different things from his sovereign hand. He's the, he's the grand magician that can take anything and use it for your good. What's the opposite of whining and complaining? It's giving thanks. Paul, every circumstance, give thanks. Every circumstance, give thanks. What are you doing by giving thanks actively? You're not excluding God's hand of blessing to turn it into good. You're, you're actively saying, all right, God, 
This is tough. You don't, you, you're, not, you're not disingenuous with your pain. God wants to, you ever read the Psalms? I mean, whoa, some things I wouldn't say. You include all that, integrate it all. But at the end, Paul or David, except for one Psalm, and I don't know if it was David or sons of Korah or who it was, they all give thanks. That's how you include. That's how you let a big God do big things. Let's end right here at verse 7. So what's happening here is, is Paul is going to give evidence for his confidence. Why he said, I'm sure of this. Confidence that they'll be there. Every Philippian he's writing to, I don't know if it's 100 of them or 200, but he's saying to all of them, I'm confident you're going to be there at the day of Jesus Christ. Verse 7, he says this. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So notice how he starts verse 7. It's a qualifying statement. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all. Right? About their salvation. About their gospel ministry. And he gives the main ground and then the evidence. So what is the ground? It says... Right there, because they are with Paul, partakers of grace. They've been saved by grace. They're real believers. There's evidence of the grace of God in their lives. They've truly been saved. They're partakers of grace. That's the ground for why he feels the way he does, why he can make that statement, okay? And then he lists things here. End of verse 7. He says, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. Three things. Evidence is this, that you've supported my missionary work no matter what. When I was in prison, Paul is saying, you still sent me money for the gospel. When the gospel was being attacked by the Roman Empire, even in your own community, you still sent me money for the gospel. When the gospel was being questioned for its legitimate legitimacy, confirmation of it, defense of it, you still sent me money for the gospel. You're true believers. I know you'll be there. You're the real deal. You'll be there on the last day of Jesus. You're gospel-propagating people, period. You and I, as he says in verse 5, have a partnership in the gospel. That's what he's saying to end it. And so some final questions for us is, are we gospel-driven people? Right? Are we gospel-driven people? When, when I call for, for, for different things, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, different ministries we're going to do. Whether it's missionaries we're sending out or relief to Gaza or a Christmas offering, whatever it might be, right? Do you give? Do you say, I'm in? Is that going to spread the gospel? I can't give a lot this season, but I'm going to give something. That's evidence, Paul's saying. But you're, you have a partnership in the gospel. You're an investing partner in the flourishing and the spread of God's message. I mean, you sit in a lawyer's meeting and there's partners or a business. And one partner ain't, ain't, ain't pulling his weight. You're going to ask, are you really a partner? I mean, you really have this, this company's best interest in mind. This is God's company. We give. We sow in. Time, effort, talent, money, volunteering, all the things. Partner in the gospel. That's what Paul said. So as we close... <clears throat> As we close, remember how he starts his, in verse 3. He thanks God. A really big God. I hope you've seen that this morning. 
And so my prayer is that may you too look to him this morning for your Christian life, all of it. May you call on him and ask him to make you into a more gospel-driven person and watch him do it. He will take all the raw material of your life and all the raw material of this church community and begin to deposit that more deeply. And you might have thought, man, I feel like I'm pretty, I'm pretty sold out for the kingdom. Well, there's more. He'll do it. He's actively making you a missionary. Is God making you more loving? Is he making you more peaceful? Is he making you more patient? Yes, those are all true. I'll tell you one thing we overlook. He's making you more into a missionary. To live with that kind of perspective as you go about your life here in Athens, Oconee. He's sovereign to do it. And my prayer is he do it in me even more in 2024. And he do more in us as Grace Athens in 2024. Amen. Amen.